Fans on the internet might get riled, but we can break it down on Effectively Wild. Hello and welcome to episode 2124 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I'm joined by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm good. Good. I watched the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> I said proudly. I know yeah. me and a hundred million other people, so nothing that notable about that, except that I don't always watch the Super Bowl. And when I don't watch the Super Bowl, I try not to make a big deal about it. I try not to ostentatiously, performatively not watch the Super Bowl. Sure. You know, I don't want to be one of the sports ball hand egg people. Yeah. It, it's fine to watch the Super Bowl. It is a yeah. cultural event. <laughs> yeah. But even if you don't care about the sport, I was not really watching because I cared so much about the football itself or even about Usher, though Usher was very good, or even about Tavis, although Taylor and Travis were very heartwarming. I was watching in large part because I knew I had to do a podcast about the trailers that premiered during the mm. <laughs> Super Bowl, which is probably not the most common reason to watch the Super Bowl. Although I don't some think people, so, no. they watch for the ads and yeah. the intrigue. You know, there are just many, many different reasons to the watch the Super Bowl and also the football. That is yeah. a pretty popular reason. But it was a good football game, as I understand it. <laughs> I think I understand enough to say <laughs> that it was indeed a good football game. Yes. And it did cause some slight envy in me to arise, some sports envy as a baseball supporter. There are some ways in which I feel like we've got it better than the other sports and the people who follow other sports exclusively. Yeah. And then there are other ways in which I feel like, oh, it'd be cool if baseball had something like that. Sure. And it's not a new observation, but it really is pretty cool to be able to just give the ball to your best player and yeah. have your best player, your era-defining franchise face player, be the one in crunch time who's leading the drive or taking the game-winning shot or whatever it is, which you can't really do in baseball unless it just so happens that the spot in the order is up where the best player gets that best opportunity. You know, you used to get it, I guess, more often when a starting pitcher would go deep into the game. Right. And then maybe like a ninth inning would be the equivalent of the final Mahomes drive where it's just like, what does he have left? Everyone's tired. You know, he has to dig deep and reach back for a little extra. And sometimes you'd see the starter who would hold something in reserve for the yeah. last inning. And then suddenly they'd be doing the Verlander, just suddenly their velocity ticks up again. Right. So we don't really get that anymore. And we've comped the starting pitcher to the quarterback kind of before as sort of a fellow protagonist figure. And that's not so much true of the starter anymore. So you get like closers, I guess, like a closer you can put in whenever you want in the yeah. big moments. But then they haven't been there for the rest of the game. So it's a little different. And, you know, I think there are some virtues to just like, hey, this is the luck of the draw. Or yeah. it's, you know, kind of random. And sometimes it makes it even more special when you do get Shohei Otani versus Mike Trout at the end of the game, right? Yeah. I mean, you can't really plan for it. You can't necessarily orchestrate it. And so because it's rare when the universe conspires to make that happen, then it's really great. 
but it would be really great to just be able to do that all the time. <laughs> so I I do have some slight sports envy there when I gaze at other sports that are able to do that. I think it's fine to have things about other sports that we appreciate. I mean, you're not a football person, really. So mm-hmm. it, it, maybe you're not getting maximal enjoyment out of that, right? But yeah. I like that baseball is different in important ways from football, a sport I also really enjoy watching. Like, it's it's nice to have, you know, different flavors. You don't want to eat the same meal for dinner every day. So I mm-hmm. think having a little bit of difference can can be nice. And to your point, like, we get to appreciate things about the game that you don't see in football. Like, mm-hmm. we get a World Series, series, Ben, you know, multiple. Mm-hmm. I prefer that as a format. And I, I understand the reasons why that's not really as feasible for, for football. So that's fine. But it, it does make you appreciate, like, oh, I get to, you know, yeah. potentially see seven. That's so cool. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's fine. You, I don't, I don't think anyone is going to revoke your baseball bona fides by you looking at another sport and saying, you guys, you're onto something over there. You know, that's pretty Mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. Well, we got a lot of mileage, maybe too much mileage for some people last off season when we did just a running list, which is on the Effectively Wild wiki of ways that baseball is unique or at least unusual. And Mm. yeah, a lot of those ways in which baseball is singular. I like baseball because of that. But there are certain ways that I think, you know, hey, that's kind of cool. And obviously, if you follow multiple sports, as probably most people do, then you get to enjoy all of those things, uh, right. every every color of the rainbow, right? And yeah. I don't get that as much because I'm kind of a, a single sport, at least in a, a serious sort of yeah. way guy. And, you know, I can still admit that, hey, this would be kind of cool. I'm not saying we have to change baseball to come into line with that. I think it's valuable probably from a marketing perspective, just, hey, you put the stars in the spotlight. And there have been various proposals. We get a lot of emails about ways that Mm -hmm. we could give managers more control over the batting order and they could reset it or they could send players up in whatever order they want as long as they use everyone. Or there's the Savannah Bananas golden batter rule, which you can just uh, send one guy up there at that big moment. So I think it's a fun thing to think about and experiment with. But you're right. It is nice to have some variety and some difference. I mean, I would just point out that I think we sustained that bit for exactly as long as was appropriate, and anyone who disagrees is being very silly, you know? Mm. I enjoyed it. It was the off-season. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What it, What else is there to do, you know? <laughs> well, by one definition, it's no longer the off-season because mm. uh, some people, the second the Super Bowl is over, they start saying, it's baseball season. Right. Not exactly. I mean, it's sort of, I guess. Maybe people have more mental room for baseball. Pitchers and catchers are reporting this week. So we're getting there. But uh, don't worry. It'll be boring for several more weeks (laughs) until the actual season starts. And some people say it's boring even then, but not us. I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, like you say that, but, you know, if you're trying to get around the backfields at Camelback Ranch, good luck to you. Plenty of activity. You know, you don't want to be a killjoy, right? You don't want to yuck anyone's yum. I've said so many nice things about the Dodgers in their offseason. But I will say that part of me uh, occupies the position of analyst, podcast host, managing editor of Fangraphs. And part of me occupies the position of someone who has to drive here, you know, and Mm -hmm. uh, might want to go see uh, other guys 
at that facility. And whenever a, a team has a big, big off season, you're like, oh boy, getting on the backfields can be a real pain in the pain mm-hmm. in the butt. You should be a you should be like a dumb sports fan about other stuff. You know, you talk about how yeah. you're not like a, a deep football guy. And let me tell you something, not not always being like the most uh, intense uh, <laughs> yeah. fan of another sport. It feels so nice, Ben. You know, I just get to be a big old goofus and like mm-hmm. no one cares what I have to say about my Seattle Seahawks. Who ca- who would care about such a thing other than you know <laughs> my friends and family who have to keep listening to me. You could try that if you wanted to. I've been enjoying that with hockey and I know even less. Yeah, well that's actually I was going to say former Effectively Wild co-host Jeff Sullivan he was a hockey fan, probably yeah. still is a hockey fan and he always said he wanted to maintain some ignorance. He yeah. did not want to view hockey the way that he views baseball. He just yeah. wanted to be kind of the the casual, mainstream, lowest common denominator, yeah. sort of salt-of-the-earth hockey fan. That's what he wanted. That's how he yeah. enjoyed the sport. And I enjoy it too. I just haven't really carved out enough room to call myself a, a fan as much as just a casual admirer, someone who yeah. can appreciate these other aspects of sports. But as I said on my other podcast, I mean, watching the Super Bowl to watch out for the Deadpool and Wolverine trailers is probably like a, I, I subscribe to Playboy for the articles kind of uh-huh. argument. I don't I don't know how many people actually do that, but I picked a, a good single football game to watch, although it was one of the longer ones. I, I yeah. noted it was what, the seventh longest, at least by yes. one accounting. So I really, I committed to the bit when I was going to watch my one football game. It was, it was going to be a lot of football. <laughs> Good game, though. Yeah. So there are still some baseball players unsigned, including some yes. prominent players, the Boris Four and... Some of those players uh, have been connected to the. I know it sounds like. Makes them sound like they're going to get indicted under the RICO statute or something. I know. I'm imagining them like sitting together in a courtroom or something. <laughs> they're like, we did not do tax evasion. <laughs> They have been connected, at least some of them, to the two teams that we are previewing the seasons of today. So we're going to be talking to Sahadev Sharma later in the episode about the Cubs. He covers the Cubs for The Athletic. Before Sahadev, we will be talking to Kennedy Landry, who covers the Texas Rangers for MLB.com. So those are the prominent players who are still out there. We all know who they are. We've talked about them, and we will talk about them again. However, more relevant to the Effectively Wild minor league free agent draft, which is the the highest of high stakes. There are also some not-so-prominent players who are on the outside looking in this spring. I've noticed there are at least a, a few of our draftees who have not yet signed, or if they signed, have not received a invitation to spring training. And yeah. I was reading a J.J. Cooper piece at Baseball America, and he outlined some of the possible reasons for yeah. this. So there has been a bit of a downsizing on roster sizes, how many players you can have in an entire organization. And this is a collectively bargained thing. Mm -hmm. Minor league players and MLB, they agreed on, you know, they had to make this concession that MLB has the right, which it has now exercised, to lower the player limit for domestic minor league players. So it it used to be 
180 players in season and 190 players off season a year ago. I mean, I guess it was even more than that before. They've already downsized the minor leagues, but it was 180 and 190. Now it has been slashed to 165 and 175, which is not an enormous difference, but it's big enough that some of those players on the cusp, some of those bubble guys, if they're not seen as worthy of a 40-man spot or there just isn't enough roster space to go around, well, there are 450 fewer total players on rosters. I mean, yep. you know, I guess technically not everyone has always gone right up to the roster limit, but you you could have at least. And according to some of the sources JJ spoke to, there is a reluctance to take flyers on guys that teams might have taken flyers on before. And there might be fewer spring training positional battles. It might just be more of the rosters set because you can't just invite uh, oodles of NRI guys, non-roster invitees, to compete for playing time. You got to really pick your spots, your roster spots. So that has implications for some players. It also has implications, more importantly, frankly, for the effectively wild minor league free agent draft. So anyone who is following that closely, that is why, or at least one possible reason why some of these guys still out in the cold waiting for someone to welcome them into the warmth of a spring training roster. Yeah. It also has had, if I understand correctly, has had an impact on the guys who you see at instructs every year, right? Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. you're with a lower domestic reserve limit, you're not bringing guys up from um, the DSL in, in the same sequence that you would. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know that's been a complaint for some of the the folks who uh, scout the complexes where it's like, where, where are our DSL guys? Where are they Ben? Right. You know what? They're still in the Dominican. Because the international players don't count toward that roster limit. It's a domestic limit until, they come to the U.S. Yeah, so you might want to wait to move them over until spring training's over and you've got your full season rosters sorted and you've done whatever cuts you're going to make and and freed up some room there. I love how you're like, it's important because of this obscure thing. (laughs) And I was like, no, no, it's important for this other obscure thing. (laughs) We love obscure things. Yes, yes. I'm sure it's uh, important to a lot of players who are directly impacted for reasons that are are very crucial to them. But yeah, that was kind of, you know, in order to get higher minimum salaries and guaranteed housing, et cetera, et cetera, or less uh, ongoing contraction of minor league teams. This was one concession that was made. So it's not unexpected. It was known that this was going to happen. But some teams, it it sounds like, according to JJ's piece, are not thrilled because there are teams that would take advantage of this and would bring in a lot of potential players and then they would sort through them and weed them out and see who looks good and who doesn't. And and now they can't afford to take those chances on guys, you know. And once you can start putting players on the 60-day injured list, then that opens up a little more space. But yeah, there's just, you know, fewer seats at the table these days, which, I mean, generally, I feel like, you know, we're in favor of more baseball players, yes. more, more baseball. You know, we like having more of this sport that we like and more players playing it at a high level and getting yep. paid to do so. So, 
this has just been an, an ongoing thing. Like, what's the future of the minor leagues and player development? And is this uh, developmental time being put to good use and uh, teams right. maybe wanting to go more toward some soccer-style academy system? And how important are games when you have all of these tools and technologies so that you can practice more efficiently, but also you can't quite replicate the experience of being in a game, competing with other people, and also it's a spectator sport. <laughs> it's right. not just for the players and for the teams to be as efficient as they possibly can with spending. Yep. It's uh, it's good to have baseball that people can watch being played yeah. so that they can become baseball fans and yes. then listen to Effectively Wild. Yeah, I agree. However, someone who has received a spring training invite, Jen Powell, who is quite close now to becoming the first female umpire in MLB. This is uh, an important, crucial step that has happened here. So Jen Powell has been in AAA, and she's a 47-year-old New Jerseyite who is uh, now really just like on the precipice of, of becoming the first big league female ump. She is, I think, the second female ump ever to work in AAA, and she worked the AAA championship game, so presumably she was good. Usually mm -hmm. you put your, your good umpires in those high-profile games. She's the first female ump to work spring training since 2007, since Rhea Cortesio did it, and Pam Postema was the only previous AAA female ump, and she never got the call to the majors, and I think ended up suing over, for discrimination over that. So it's been a hard road. We talked about this recently that it seems like maybe there are even fewer excuses when it comes to umpires and, and not having any. And yes, there's a pipeline problem and a shortage because of the historical lack of female umps, et cetera. But there's really just no reason why a woman can't do that job as well. No. And getting this assignment so she's going to be a, a full-time spring training ump this year. And historically speaking, that has been a very solid indicator that you were about to be a big league ump because this article I'm reading says 26 umpires were assigned full spring training schedules last year. So there's 76 full-time staff umps, and then there are the fill-in crews who come up for injuries and vacations. So there were 26 umps assigned full spring training schedules last year, and 21 of those were assigned to the in-season call-up list. Mm. And all of them worked at least one assignment, whether it was on the field or in the video review control room. So once you get on this list, this full-time spring training ump list, then the odds, at least based on that rate from last year, are very good that you're going to get some big league action in that coming season. So fingers crossed, I guess that bodes well. Yeah, I... Like, it's an area of, like, pretty profound frustration for me. And I understand, like you said, there are pipeline issues. You have to get folks trained. But, like, there's just no – there's no reason, you know. There's not a good reason a lot of the time when, like, <laughs> when, you know, you you haven't had a woman or a particular identity sort of break through in some sort of role within the game. Um, there's so – there's – what <laughs> – you know, Ben? Like, what is yeah. – like what, what, yeah. what, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> um, and I think 
when we um, started we're, this episode, we were talking about uh, baseball in relation to other sports. What an mm-hmm. embarrassment, you know, mm-hmm. the the majors are when it comes to this particular issue. Mm. Um, you know, there have been female officials in the NFL and the NBA for a long, long time. And, you know, it's to the point where it's like not really remarked upon. We're not being we're at the point like with with the state of NFL officiating where we're no longer being introduced to each new woman who is (laughs) officiating, which is like when you know that things have gotten to not, you know, complete parody. Maybe, you know, I don't want to like downplay the the issues that might still remain in terms of diversifying the officiating ranks within the NFL. I just don't know that space well enough to know. But I do know that I don't know any of their names. You know, I'm not Mm -hmm. being introduced to them on an individual basis. And it's really nice when you get to that spot where it's just like no longer remarkable. Mm -hmm. So I hope that we get to that place in baseball uh, and very quickly because no, there's no reason. It's just like Mm -hmm. one of the dumber first that we have yet to achieve in terms of the the reasoning behind its delay so because there's just no there's just no, ben there's no there's not there's nothing there's no nothing. So, yeah so i don't know how many other women are in that pipeline currently i know isabella rob is is another professional ump who started a couple of years ago but it's also that yeah when you get the first one the barrier breaker the trailblazer it's not necessarily like okay the floodgates are open finally i mean we we talked about Kim Ang, of course, and, and how much of a milestone it was that mm-hmm. she got the GM job for the Marlins. And then, well, she's no longer doing that job and right. no one else is currently, right. you know, it's, it's uh, dudes all the way down. So, yeah, I guess the breakthrough is very important. But then what happens after the breakthrough is is also pretty important. So, yeah, hopefully we get a, a non-male ump before we get a robo ump. <laughs> I mean, right. I know that's obviously, you know, the, the ABS system coming in is, is not actually going to cut down on the number of umpires on the field. At least it's not supposed to initially, right. <laughs> but right. that would it'd be nice to have, uh, I think, that milestone, that human element milestone before we, yeah. we get the automatic milestone. Yeah, I I agree, Ben. I agree. I just... (laughs) Hopefully this season. All right. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Kennedy Landry to talk about the Texas Rangers, followed by Sahadev Sharma on the Chicago Cubs. All right, it is time to talk about the champs, the Texas Rangers. And to do so, we are joined by Kennedy Landry, who covers the Rangers for MLB.com. Hello, Kennedy. Hey, hey, how are y'all doing? I sound very Texas there. I just I just thought about that, but yes. <laughs> I was going to ask, have you adopted the the accent? Is it rubbing off on you, or is that no, uh, no. your natural sound? <laughs> yeah, no, not quite yet. I'm from Louisiana, so right next door. Uh, still got a little bit of the southern twang, but not quite as much as they do out in Texas. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, if I went to cover a Texas team, I'd probably start pandering to my audience and I'd suddenly sound like a, a Texan. I don't know if I could pull that off, but I could try. You started covering the Rangers in mid-2020, is that right? 
Uh, yes, about there. It was a uh, spring training 2021 was like my first like real dive into it. Uh, so, yeah. you know, 100 lost season, 90 lost season, then, you know, World Series. It's been a, a lot going on since <laughs> I started this beat. I know. I was going to say, that's a real whirlwind. You've seen the worst of times and the best of times in a pretty short span of time. So has it sunk in for you? Like, are you surprised that it came together as quickly and dramatically as it did? And and does the fan base feel that way? I mean, obviously, they waited forever for a championship, so it's, it's not like it was not a long time coming. But I wonder whether that turnaround took people by surprise. Yeah, absolutely. I think especially when you see the the kind of fans on Twitter and every now and then a tweet comes up and somebody will just screenshot the baseball reference, like, you know, the top of the page where it says world champs and just tweet <laughs> that with, with no context, like just the, the screenshot. Um, and I, and I think a lot of fans are still like in that, like, oh my God, this actually happened kind of, kind of vibe. And I, I feel that as well, just because like you said, it's been what, 52 years in Arlington, even longer if you count senators years. And it, it feels very unreal. And, you know, they, they were building to this, obviously they went through a very dramatic rebuild and, you know, fired a lot of people, hired Bruce Bochy. So, so all the pieces were there, but I, I honestly am still very shocked that, you know, that run happened, you know, starting with the beginning of October with the long road trip that shall not be named. And, you know, through the World <laughs> Series in Arizona, it, it still feels kind of wild for me as somebody who, you know, is fairly new to this, the fan base and the organization and everything, uh, that this kind of happened how it did. Yeah, when the, the Texas Beats showed up in the Chase Field press box, everybody still looked very, very tired <laughs> <laughs> as a result of that long road trip. There are a lot of places that we could start in the lineup here, but I actually want to start in the rotation because... What do you what do you get the team that has everything in terms of hitters, except for maybe one of the best prospects in baseball? But things are a little more unsettled on the rotation side, at least in terms of when they are going to get folks back. So walk us through sort of the logic that the front office has uh, employed this offseason in terms of how they think about the eventual returns of DeGrom, Maley and Scherzer, as well as the guys that are supposed to bridge them to their returns. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, talking to Chris Young and, you know, I defer to him a lot. He, he has a lot more faith than maybe I do looking at this on paper. Um, you know, you have those top five guys and, you know, Nathan Avaldi is going to do what Nathan Avaldi does and Andrew Heaney, John Gray, you know, Dane Dunning. But when your fifth starter is a, a second year Cody Bradford, who kind of was a swing man last year that kind of raises some some question marks. So I think the front office has clearly bet on a lot of things going right, a lot of health, you know, kind of bridging this gap, like you said, to when those guys return during the summer, uh, should be, you know, July, August area for pretty much all three of them. It's not looking exactly like the guys in this rotation haven't exactly been the the picture of stability, I guess you'd say, you know, down the stretch. Nathan Valdi, for as good as he's been, has had IL stints in the last, I think, four straight years. Um, even a guy like like John Gray, who who has been up and down health-wise, you know. Andrew Heaney has, you know, been able to give innings, as has Dane Dunning and, and Cody Bradford, and I think they'll be able to eat a lot of innings. But they're definitely going to be relying on some of these guys coming in through the system, like Owen White or Zach Kent. But I mean, the question really is, can those guys give you quality big league innings? Can they come up and not get shelled, you know, once every five days? And I don't know if there's an actual answer for that. You know, a lot of people have been asking me about Jack Leiter. And I think, again, that's another main point where I think Chris Young seems to have a lot more confidence than I do personally in, you know, how Jack Leiter's development has gone. It has not been exactly how we all expected coming out of Vanderbilt, you know, the ace pitcher that he was. And 
you know, he ended last year on a strong note in AAA, and maybe he can, you know, turn that into something this year for the team and for, for himself and his career. But, you know, there are a lot of question marks with this rotation going forward, you know, going into camp in a couple of days. Um, and, hey, they just got their broadcast situation kind of settled, so maybe they come in at the last moment and get Jordan Montgomery and at least bring a little bit more stability back to this. But this isn't going to be a smooth ride if I had to predict it going into the year. Yeah, not to name drop. I was also talking to Chris Young recently (laughs) for an article I'm working on at The Ringer, and he was mentioning just when I congratulated him on on the World Championship that, you know, the offseason has gone really quickly, or at least it's felt fast to him, and that, you know, you win and you finally get to the promised land and then it starts all over again. You know, you just you just have to run it right back. You don't get to really savor that championship that long before you're asked to defend it. And the Rangers haven't been super active this offseason. And I don't know that they needed to be exactly, but, you know, it's Kirby Yates and it's Tyler Malley, right? And Andrew Kisner and David Robertson, right? Mostly sort of minor moves. And as you mentioned, they're kind of depending on some guys to come back and be healthy. Were there areas where it might have made sense to upgrade where they didn't? You know, often with teams that win the World Series, it's all about kind of bringing back the same group that that just got you there and get the gang back together, maybe to a fault even sometimes. But between the injury returners and the prospects, was it seen as just sort of a, you know, we, we kind of have what we need? Or are there areas where fans are frustrated that they weren't more aggressive? Yeah, again, I think this all comes down to the rotation. A lot of fans are very, very angry that Jordan Montgomery has not, you know, already been back in Arlington and done a physical and everything. I think signing Jordan Montgomery would bring a tremendous amount of goodwill from from the fan base, which, you know, I don't know. I know they don't do things particularly just to make fans happy. But yeah, I think Jordan Montgomery, like I said, could be a real stabilization for this uh, rotation going into the season. Maybe, I, I don't know if this is maybe a me thing, but I felt like they really could have brought back Mitch Garver, who signed with, with the Mariners, I think the week of Christmas. He had some injuries, but he became like a really stabilizing force in the in the lineup, you know, hitting in the middle of the lineup as the designated hitter. He caught some games behind Jonah Heim when he got injured. He drove in the game-winning run in the in Game Five of the World Series. I mean, he had a phenomenal grand slam in Baltimore during the ALDS. And this guy, what they traded for him back in 2022, and what he became down the stretch during that World Series run, I think made a world of difference. I do think they probably could have brought him back. They have a hole at designated hitter, which I, when I'm looking at it, they're hoping that uh, Wyatt Langford will be able to fill that, and I I think that's a high possibility, but. You know, Mitch Garver, I think, was was a really big part of this World Series t- team that kind of got lost in the shuffle with guys like, obviously, Corey Seager and Adolis Garcia and, you know, everything that happened last year, it, it got lost in the shuffle. But other than that, going into trying to rebuild and re-up, it was really just about strengthening the pitching staff. You know, the they while they did win the World Series, they had one of the worst bullpens in baseball in the regular season. And I think we all saw that. I have uh, rewrote many, 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 many gamers in the <laughs> seventh, eighth, and ninth innings and tenth innings and all of those things last year. And beat reporters can all relate to that. So, you know, like you said, they Kirby Yates, David Robertson, they kind of replaced those two kind of went in and replaced Will Smith and Aroldis Chapman, hoping that things are a little smoother in the bullpen this year. And, you know, I think they did mostly what they wanted to do outside of, you know, the rotation there. 
I want to ask about one of the prospects that Ben referenced. We can talk about Langford and we should in a second, but I want to talk about Evan Carter for a minute. I always feel a little nervous on behalf of guys who come up and are as good as quickly as Evan Carter was in his 23 game big league debut. And then obviously in the postseason, because the expectations that you set when you have a 180 WRC plus and then win the World Series <laughs> seem like they can't possibly be met. But what are their expectations for Carter this year and what his have you observed from him just from when he came up to the big leagues to the end of that World Series? Yeah, I think their expectations of him are pretty much to do exactly what he did. And like you said, those 23 games, one thing that, you know, came up when Josh Young, you know, made his, um, well, became the everyday starting third baseman last year was like, hey, there's a lot of heavy hitters in this lineup. You don't have to do too much. You, you know, the pressure's not really on you, despite how good of a prospect you are or have been. And, you know, all these expectations that you may have said, Josh, Josh said one day, he was like, I look over to my left and that's Corey Seager. Like he's making way more money than I'm making. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, pre- the pressure is actually on him. It's not on me. Um, and, and I think that's the same thing the Rangers expect and want from Evan Carter to just, you know, not try to do too much, play his game. And all of those cliches that I think, you know, actually work when you have a lineup like the Rangers do, you know, he hit three hole in, you know, game five of the world series at 21 years old. Like the dude could barely drink the beer they had when they celebrated it, but he was phenomenal. And, you know, talking to him, I I did a feature on him last spring training and he's such a calm and level-headed kid. Bruce Bochy had a quote. He's like, he looks like he's playing little league. Like he's also, he always, he's always just out there having fun, having a good time. Like, He's smiling, like he, he hits a triple and he's just like laughing. I don't know. He just has a has a real love for the game and he just wants to go out and compete every day. You see that, um, you know, day in and day out. He's, you know, like he said, like guys like Corey Seager and Adolis Garcia are there. He doesn't have to to carry a lineup. He just has to get on base and, and they're going to drive him in. And he sees that, the Rangers see that. And like I said, they don't need too much from him. And, you know, he's going to give it all he's got. He's phenomenal. He's a Great kid. He's really fun to watch. And I can't wait to see, you know, the trajectory of his career. Well, speaking of Corey Seager, when will he be there? Because uh, <laughs> mm. he was the recipient of a rare late January surgery, in his case for a sports hernia that hadn't healed sufficiently. So what was the timeline there or the decision making when it came to trying to rest before he had surgery? And what's the outlook for his return? My understanding is that, you know, they tried some more conservative treatment options, hoping it would be, you know, ready for, for spring training that, you know, didn't ultimately work. Uh, he had the surgery a couple weeks ago, and they said uh, he should be ready for opening day. They, maybe that they hope he will be ready for opening day. Chris Young always says, I don't want to put a specific timeline on things. Uh, but, you know, Corey is going to be in surprise come next week. We'll see him. You know, we haven't talked to him since the surgery. So, I'm you know, very interested to see what he has to say. Um, but we we also we saw this last year when Corey if Corey has to miss the first you know week or two or however long that's going to be you, you know Ezekiel Duran stepped in and really put on a show last year when Corey Seager w- went down a couple of different times so they have contingency plans in the backup if if Corey Seager needs to miss a few games again then obviously that's not you don't want your World Series MVP to not be your starting you know opening day shortstop but you know hopefully things work out and they don't have to go to the contingency plans. Okay, now I'm going to ask about Langford because this... (laughs) 
this trajectory is not unprecedented, but it is very unusual for a guy to be drafted in June of the previous year and for us to just be talking about him as like, yeah, he might slot in as the starting DH on the reigning World Series champion. So what do they realistically expect of Langford and what are their sort of contingency plans in the very reasonable event that he needs <laughs> a little more time in the minors? My honest expectation is that Wyatt Langford will not be the opening day DH. I do think, you know, we'll see him by June or July. I'll start with the second part of the question first. My expectation is that uh, another prospect, Justin Foskey, will be the opening day uh, DH. He was added to the 40-man roster this past offseason to avoid the Rule 5 draft. He was a first-round pick out of Mississippi State during the, the COVID-shortened 2020 draft. I'm honestly still shocked that he is in this organization due to the long time, the long-term contract signed of Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon. He's a second baseman with not as much, you know, defensive versatility as a guy like Ezekiel Duran who can play the outfield or pretty much everywhere else um, on the, on the field. So I, I am kind of shocked that Justin Foskey is still in this organization, but you know, he's got a real good bat on him. And I think again, in the reasonable expectations that Langford doesn't make the opening day roster, I do think that's what's, what the Rangers are going to go to on Langford. I think we used to laugh in the press box every time we would look up like the Frisco or the Round Rock like box scores, and we're like, "Well, Langford got on base five times again today. Like, yeah. he was getting on base at a at a at a five hundred clip through high A, double A, and triple A. I mean, it, it was kind of insane just how like quickly he he played. I think three games in rookie ball, then you know went to went to high A, got promoted after less than twenty five games, and then got promoted after less than fifteen games to to finish off the season in Round Rock. It was insane. If he hits, there's honestly no way I think they keep him off the roster. Bruce Boshi and Chris Young have both made the point that, hey, like, if he earns it, he can make it here. You know, they've made this culture, they've established this culture of, like, this. it's a performance-based industry, and if you prove that you can make it on this team, you can hit the big leagues and do all of these things, they're going to promote you. So I don't think this is something where, you know, he hasn't earned his time or anything because he's shown that he can hit the crap out of the ball, quite frankly. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see. He, this is going to be his first big league camp, how he you know, interacts in, in the clubhouse, on the field, and, and all of these things. The outfield seems like, you know, with, again, Evan Carter, Adolis Garcia, Leone Tavares, there's not a very clear opening in the outfield for, for him to play, which is why DH seems to be the, the most likely situation here. Again, this this kid is amazing. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm an LSU alum. I watched every game of the, of the College World Series. Um, and seeing him, you know, he hit an insane home run in, I think, game two of the World Series where he, he spiked the bat and it was like insane. And when the Rangers had the number four pick and, you know, he was still there, it was like, oh my God, I can't believe they got him. And then, you know, watching his trajectory the entire season was insane. So, you know, I, I think this kid is, is going to be a, a part of this Rangers team for a very long time. And I'm very interested to see how this spring training goes. Yeah, I don't remember who asked the question, but I, I remember in, uh, you might remember Kennedy and Chris Young's uh, press conference after Adolis Garcia went down in the World Series. Someone asked, well, do you, would you consider bringing Langford up? And Chris <laughs> dismissed it kind of out of hand. And I was like, no, but really, would you consider bringing Langford up? <laughs> yeah, the, the group of us, the beat, we were talking about that when it happened. Because we were actually, funnily enough, we were in the Chick-fil-A line at Chase Field when we got the the notification about it so we're all standing there we're like are they gonna 
call apply and like for this? Like, are they going to do it? And we designated Evan Grant to be the person to, to ask that question. Uh, and he, he did. Um, and, and, you know, like you said, Chris was kind of like, no, no, we're not going to do that. But we were all like, it's, but are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, while we're talking about young guys, let's talk about Josh Young. So he was very good until he hurt himself. And then when he came back from the injury, initially, he struggled for a couple of weeks and then the postseason rolled around and he was sort of his old self again. So is there additional offensive upside in Josh Young? You know, his swing decisions maybe are not the best. He swings and misses a lot. He also has power. He can compensate for that. But can they run him through the Adolis Garcia machine and give him <laughs> better swing selection, pitch selection as well, in addition to everything else he does well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, we talked to Josh Young at FanFest a couple weeks ago. And, you know, he said, I think I had a good season. It could have been a great season. And I asked him, you know, what's one thing you wanted to, to fix? And he said health, first of all. Uh, mm -hmm. But the second thing, he was like, I just need to stop swinging at the slider down in the way. Every single time <laughs> I swing at it, I know I shouldn't swing at it. I think I can hit it, but I know I can't hit it every time I do yeah. it. Uh, I guess so thousands I, of players have told themselves that, <laughs> but not all right. of them are able to do it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think the hitting coaches, Donnie Ecker and Tim Heyer, obviously put a ton of work into Adolis Garcia and making him, you know, it's not like he's turned into Juan Soto or anything, but, you know, Adolis Garcia has his chase rate went down a ton. His walk rate skyrocketed last year. You know, he's making better decisions while really not sacrificing any of his power. So I think, you know, Josh, you know, works a lot with the hitting coaches as well. And he's very, he's a kind of a maniac about hitting. He's so into it and he loves to chat about it, loves to watch the videos. And I know a lot of baseball players are like that. We all know that, but, you know, I think Josh is very, you know, intent on becoming an even better baseball player this year. And I think, you know, obviously that's one of those things and just being healthy, it's going to be the number one thing to to take his game to the next level. I think, especially even through the minors, health was really the only thing standing in, in front of him being, you know, as phenomenal as a player as he, he could have been the opening day third baseman in 2021 without um, a foot injury that year. I think it was um, a shoulder injury in 2022 and, you know, the, the thumb halfway through 2023 that kind of delayed his rookie of the year campaign. All of these things, I think Josh Young is a phenomenal player. He actually was very good defensively when I, when I started on this beat and everybody was like, yeah, he's, he's a fine third baseman. And, you know, watching him, I was like, fine, this guy looks great. I don't, I don't know what anybody else was talking about. And I think he really compliments this lineup, both offensively and de defensively, you know, next to Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon. He, like I said, he doesn't have to do too much. Just put the bat to the ball, barrel it up, you know, somewhere across the field and, and he's got it. So like he said, he can have a great season this year, even better than he did this year. If he lays off the slider and, um, stays a little healthy. Yeah. You witnessed the transition from Woodward to Bochi, and that obviously coincided with a great improvement in the team's fortunes. There were other things that happened that could have caused that as well. So how much of that was correlation? How much was causation? How different was the clubhouse or just the team atmosphere with Bochi or because of Bochi? And what did you see him do differently or do well that may have helped the Rangers have the season they had? Chris Woodward was a, he was a great man. Um, I, you know, enjoyed covering him. I, he was really great with the media, all of these things. But when Bruce Bochy walks in a room, it feels like, it feels like there's an adult in the room, you know, if that makes any sense. I mean, this guy's a hall of famer and everybody knows it. 
when he walks in the room, you can tell, you know, these guys respect him. They respect what he has to say. They respect the decisions that he's inevitably going to make. And Bruce Bochy trusts his gut. He he talks a lot. Chris Young said this during the playoffs last year. Like, Bruce isn't an old school manager in how you think of an old school manager. He, he uses the analytics. He talks to the, the scouts and the analysts and all of these things. But he also has a really unique feel of the person and the player and, you know, how his own decisions will affect it. You know, he, he likes to ride a hot hand. He likes to hide a, ride a hot streak. You know, Marcus Simeon struggled throughout the playoffs. We all saw him. Bruce is like, no, this is our guy. We're going to keep hitting him in the leadoff spot, even though we have constantly asked him, like, are you sure you want to keep, you know, hitting Marcus leadoff? And, you know, Bruce Bochy has a, a, such a trust in the guys that are his guys that I think goes above and beyond just the pure X's and O's of baseball. And I think that that really makes a difference with, with the guys and, you know, that this team and this clubhouse is really willing to, to do whatever Bruce Bochy asks of them and they trust whatever he's going to do. And I mean, they're ready to go to for war for this guy. It's kind of it's kind of insane sometimes just watching how everybody interacts and, and seeing how the players respond to him. I don't know if that's a, anything really tangible. I, obviously, they won the World Series. They had a dramatic improvement in you know stats and numbers and record and, and all of these things. But just the, the pure energy of Bruce Bochy is kind of unmatched. I don't know if I've ever been around a coach in any sport that's that had just quite the energy that he does and what he brings to this clubhouse. It's, it's kind of insane. I think and during the, you know, the Rangers won what 13 games on the road to win the world series. Um, we, we just started calling it Bruce Bochy devil magic because we're like, <laughs> what is this guy doing? Like he's, he's, it's amazing. And it's kind of really hard to, to understand, but he's changed the trajectory of this, you know, entire organization, honestly. We've already talked about Langford and you mentioned Justin Foscue, we talked about Carter, too, who is still prospect eligible, I guess. But I'm, I'm curious if there are other young guys on the farm who you could see having an impact in the 2024 season. I always feel bad for prospects um, <laughs> on teams like this because it's like, well, where do you, if you're a position player and you're not Langford or Carter, who already has a spot, like, where do you even go if you're trying to make your way through here? But does anyone strike you as likely to have an impact in the 2024 season? There's two pitchers who I think could really have an impact. I'm not I'm not sure if this will actually happen, and maybe this is just a pipe dream of mine after watching some games in Round Rock, but Antoine Kelly and Mark Church are, t- are two relievers, actually, who I think can really make an impact on the on the squad this year there. They both were added to the 40-man roster to avoid the Rule 5 draft. They both had kind of breakout seasons in 2023. Like I said, the Rangers' bullpen was kind of a, a mess last year. They, you know, they have a few open spots kind of up for grabs in the bullpen that they can, these young guys can kind of compete for. And it, I, I think there's a lot of still question marks. Obviously if you're a position player, like you said, I don't, I don't know if a lot of these guys are going to make it this year to the big leagues, unless it's on a different team. But, but those two guys I think can make some waves. And I guess the biggest one outside of those two personally is Owen White. He had a breakout season was the organization's minor league pitcher of the year in 2022 kind of struggled in 2023 last year with the jump to AAA. Uh, he's on the 40-man roster. He made his big league debut last year as an injury replacement. He's honestly the next man up right now. He's I think he might be the the sixth guy. If anybody goes down with those the DeGrom, Serger, and Molly kind of not coming to the summer, he, he has a very obvious and big chance to make a, a very long, sustainable impact this year. And it'll be very interesting to see if he can give them some real quality big league innings. 
because they have those guys coming back midseason in the rotation, if you believe the projections, they're hardly locks to win this division. So let's say the projections are right and they're looking like third place team or they're looking up at the Astros and the Mariners or at least it's kind of a close race. Do you think that this is a team that would be aggressive at the deadline and would add, or would they default to, well, we're already getting the best deadline acquisitions. We're getting the best reinforcements. We're going to get DeGrom back. We're going to get Scherzer back, et cetera. And how confident can you be that those guys are going to be their old or younger selves when they are <laughs> back on the field? I think, you know, Chris Young has proven that he knows when and when not to to make decisions when it comes to this. I, I'm very interested to see what the trade deadline looks like considering if they do go in as a, as a third place team. I think we've been joking all offseason that they've already won the trade deadline. Like you said, you get Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer back. That that feels like a, a win in and of itself, but I don't think they can really count on that 100%. I think they will at least have to acquire maybe one other starter. Maybe the White Sox asking price from Dylan Cease will go down a bit by the time we get to, to August 1st. Something along those lines. But I think what the Rangers really need right now is a, an innings eater more than anything. And if we get to if we get to July, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe they went out a little early like they did last year with the World of Chavin, which was, I think, four weeks before the trade deadline, just because they just desperately needed, you know, bullpen arms. So I wouldn't, I would not expect them to be quite as aggressive as they were this past um, trade deadline. Obviously, Max Scherzer, Jordan Montgomery were the big names there, but I, I do think they might try to to get one, maybe two others, depending on you know what the landscape is looking like. So the Rangers issued a press release just a couple hours before we started talking to you about the Rangers and Diamond Sports have officially finalized their linear broadcast rights deal for the 2024 season. So they know they're going to be on Valley Sports Southwest this season. At the same time, it says we will continue to work for ways to enhance and expand how our fans will be able to view Texas Rangers baseball in the future. So do you have any idea what that future <laughs> might look like? I guess that's a bigger, broader question than just the Rangers. That's kind of a league-wide question, maybe. But how much of a relief is it to have that certainty for 2024? And what might things look like beyond that? Yeah, the, the Rangers are fairly tight-lipped when it comes to, to answering questions about, honestly, this entire situation. I'm glad it's you know settled. And I'm glad fans will at least get to watch a couple of uh, spring training games and an exhibition against the Red Sox before the the season starts. And you know they'll there is a way, no matter how difficult it may be, to watch the Rangers in 2024. But I don't know. I, I'm sometimes I I read a lot of these the press releases and the the news stories and. I'm like I, this. I went to school for journalism, and I write about baseball. This like feels way over my head, you know. Um, <laughs> that's kind of how I feel a lot of the times when I'm I'm reading this. So I, I'm honestly not entirely sure where the Rangers will go after this. I know they've had a very long-standing agreement with um, with Bally and you know Fox Sports as it was before. I hope we don't have to wait until you know February 12th for that news again next year. I guess this is a related question. I mean, the 2023 season saw a lot of clubs that had been willing to invest significant payroll dollars and spend big have a hard time, right? The Mets didn't make the postseason. Everything that happened in San Diego happened. And then, you know, I think a lot of people who want clubs to run big payrolls if it helps them win held up the Rangers. It's like, but the Rangers, right? They won the World Series. They went out and they signed big free agent contracts and they were able to go get a championship. 
you know, this roster, apart from needing another starter, is, at least on the position player side, very complete. What do you imagine their sort of payroll picture is going to be over the next year or a couple years, especially with the potential still uncertainty around the RSN stuff? The RSN does kind of complicate any situations. Obviously, they, especially looking at they just signed Adolis Garcia to that two-year extension to avoid an arbitration hearing. I think, you know, you look at other guys like, you know, Josh Young, Evan Carter, Wyatt Langford, who could be extension eligible for looking forward to how the payroll will change. But again, they, I don't see them kind of investing as much externally in the, the coming years, considering, like you said, this roster is fairly complete when you on the position player side, it's pretty much everybody is, you know, long term at this point. I don't think any of the the starters except for DH, obviously that's a, a whole um, will be a free agent until I think 2027, I want to say is the earliest. Don't quote me on that, but it, it'll be a, a few years. So any kind of external investment will come out probably on the pitching side with a, a few guys departing after this year. Chris Young, Ray Davis, Neil Liebman, they've all kind of invested in this this organization. They've shown that they're willing to spend money. And I think, you know, if the needs arise and if they realize, hey, we need to, you know, upgrade here or there or wherever, I do think they're not scared of upping payroll. That being said, I think the RSN does complicate the situation and how that kind of plays out over the next few years, whatever that may be. But Ray Davis has a lot of old money at his disposal. Last thing, we touched on the bullpen a bit earlier and won't anyone think of the beat writers needing to rewrite their leads? And as you said, there have been some additions there. And yet, after it all, they still project 26th best in bullpen war, according to fan graphs, which seems to suggest that another season of tearing up <laughs> drafts might be ahead of you. I mean, is there some potential that that could be more of a shutdown unit? Or are they just going to really ride Jose Leclerc hard again? Because that guy looked pretty tired by the end of the season. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think, you know, they're going to come out and be a, a bullpen full of Mariano Rivera's next year. But I, I, I don't want knock on wood, but I, I do think it's going to be significantly better than, than last year. For as good as a role as Chapman is, he blew his fair number of saves as well. Will Smith blew a significant number of saves. I think Kirby Yates and David Robertson maybe don't have as high of a ceiling as a Roldish Chapman, but I think they are they have the ability to be a bit more consistent than those two were in the, you know, higher leverage situations. And Josh Spores, when we look at, you know, how he did in the regular season last year, it was um, a lot of overwork and, you know, injury may, had him struggling. I think his final ERA was just under six. But he was really good in the postseason. He was probably next to Jose Leclerc as their best reliever in the postseason. I think if he comes into camp healthy, he doesn't have to open the season on the injured list, doesn't have to take a two-week trip to Round Rock on a rehab assignment. Um, if he can you know, stay healthy and consistent, that's you know, another point in the Rangers' favor to be able to kind of get this thing moving in the right direction uh, this year, especially with, how again, how bad it was last year. So we always end by asking what constitutes success this season for the team in question. And when you just won the World Series, I guess it's hard to go anywhere but down <laughs> from there unless you repeat. Then again, it's hard to come into a season and say that it's really a failure if you don't win the World Series, even though a lot of teams will say that, even if it's just a lip service to kind of placate the fans and show that they have championship aspirations. But is there any other rubric by which Rangers fans could assess this 
season short of repeating just in terms of, I don't know, setting up a long-term championship core or winning a division or progress in the farm system? I don't know. Is there any other way that uh, we could judge this season except by the standards of last season? I don't know if anybody will say this out loud, but I think, you know, losing to the division to the Astros on the game 162 and a 1-0 loss uh, via tiebreaker really, really, really hurt. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think everybody in this organization wants to win the division. I think they, you know, want to officially, quote unquote, usurp the, the Astros from their position atop of it. Obviously, they won the ALCS in very dramatic fashion in, in seven games and um, in Houston, you know, and that's good. That's great. Especially, you know, you win the World Series after all of that. But Everybody wanted to win the division um, by not winning the division that, again, started the road trip from hell. <laughs> again, short of winning the World Series and repeating, um, I think if this team doesn't win the division, that will almost be kind of considered a failure, whether they you know, are able to get into the playoffs again by, by a wild card or you know, whatever that may be. They, they want to win this division and they want to do it over the Astros. Yeah, I guess they could be a little less streaky. Maybe it doesn't matter whether you're streaky or consistent when you win the World Series. However you get there, it's fine. But it would maybe be better for just the mental states of Rangers fans if they were just kind of consistently good instead of (laughs) great sometimes and (laughs) terrible sometimes. But however it goes, you can read about the Rangers season at MLB.com following Kennedy's coverage. Thank you so much for coming on. Awesome. Thank you guys for having me. This was great. And we will take one more quick break and we'll be right back with Sahadav Sharma of The Athletic to talk about the Chicago Cubs. What's the greatest podcast of all if you love the game of baseball? It's effectively wild. It's effectively wild. When men land All right, we are joined now, as we always are, for these Cubs preview segments, and what a pleasure for us, by Sahadav Sharma, who covers the Cubs for The Athletic and is coming to us in old-school, effectively wild fashion from his car. Hello, <laughs> Sahadav in the car. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. It's uh, I always look forward to this. I, I feel like it prepares me for, for the season as well and gets my <laughs> gets my head in the right right place. <laughs> Good. Now, Meg recently questioned the trend of people recording themselves on video in the car. Are you in the car now for sound quality purposes, for privacy purposes? What's the the motivation? Purely privacy purposes. I I don't want to sit somewhere where my wife can hear me. She's sleeping. Mm -hmm. Uh, She has a night shift tonight. So I'm purely to to keep her asleep. (laughs) And the car is is not in motion, to be clear. (laughs) The car is stationary. We're not endangering Sahadev as he conducts this interview or any other drivers on the road. (laughs) So, I don't think I have a segue to the Cubs from that. I was workshopping something about the car never getting out of the driveway or something. But but I'm always paranoid when we do these preview segments that some big news will happen before we publish that will render our preview obsolete. And it seems like the Cubs might be one of the teams that we have the highest risk of that happening? Or am I being too bullish on the chances that the Cubs might still have a major move in them? 
I honestly, I'd be very surprised if they don't have a major move left in them. It it, Dang it, it. doesn't make sense. <laughs> just, okay, it, you just sit in your car. We'll bring you back at, <laughs> at some point when when the Cubs make that move. Uh, pretty much everything. That's I mean everything that we write, everything that the way I think about this team is with that in mind that they are going to add another player, likely one of the four major Boris clients. Uh, I think you lean towards Bellinger, right? Like that's become that's always been most likely once it got to this point, right? If it if this deal was done, if if somehow Bellinger had signed in December, it would not have been the Cubs. Zero percent chance that was happening. And it's kind of played out in a in a way that I, I guess I it, a lot of us laid out as the best case scenario for the Cubs and Bellinger having a reunion, this dragging out far too long. Bellinger not finding the market he had hoped to find, and then a place that he loves, that need, has a need for him, a clubhouse he fit in really well with. Like, it makes all the sense in the world for that to happen. But it's really this this front office is so obsessed on value, which, you know, isn't a rare thing. You look across the game. I think part of the reason why these guys are all available, I was, I was talking to someone around baseball, like, look at all the uh, front offices that kind of need a player right now. They are the value-obsessed uh, front offices, right? Dave Dombrowski doesn't really need someone right now. He's not going to be his regular aggressive self. You don't see Theo Epstein's anymore in this game as much. Theo Epstein and Dave Dabrowski, I felt like, were the last few. A.J. Preller uh, does it as well, right? Nobody else really acts that way. Super aggressive with their money early on in the in the winter. Jed is all about value. Carter Hawkins is all about value. So we'll see. Who's the, most, who's the best value of that group? Is it Matt Chapman? They have a huge hole at third. That would make sense. Uh, Jordan Montgomery, no uh, offer attached to him, right? So there's no draft pick attached to signing him. I think he makes a lot of sense. All depends on what Blake Snell ends up signing for. But if that's really much less than any of us expected, I could even see that happening. So there's so many ways this team can go right now. They have holes. They can improve. It's a decent roster. But I, I don't think anyone denies that You know, there's some obvious moves you can make with the players left that would upgrade this team. And they have the flexibility and the ability to do it. Well, and I think that part of what set that expectation was not just the obvious needs that exist on the roster that you mentioned, but also that, you know, in in some ways the Cubs started um, their free agent or uh, acquisitions is maybe a better way of putting it early by bringing in Craig Council. So can you tell us what went into uh, their decision to move on from David Ross and sort of what the TikTok of that move is? Because uh, when you bring in Council, you're, you're signaling that you want to win because why else have a good manager like that, right? Right. I mean, well, for, this really goes back years and it goes back to Madden years where I distinctly remember just the way they talked about the Cubs, the, like the Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer at that time were in charge, right? And the way they talked about their team and the way they talked about the Brewers and you know, they wouldn't come out and say it, but it was pretty obvious they felt they were the more talented club. But somehow Milwaukee managed to year after year maximize the talent they had on their roster. And uh, it was a better as a group than it looked on paper. Every year, the Brewers were better than expected. Cubs a little less after that 2016 run and 17 uh, NLCS. It always seemed like they were a little less than what you expected. It wasn't. A, you looked at the talent. And it's like, why isn't this offense as good as it should be? Look at all these hitters. Look at all this offensive production. It's not coming together right. 
I think they always felt like Craig Council was uh, taking his team to another level. So they've uh, like he, Jed has always had an infatuation in that sense that Craig Council is next level when it comes to manager. This is all about the opportunity. I think I think when you look at did they dislike David Ross? I, I wouldn't say that. I think the fan base, especially with how the season ended. You know, when you look at some of the numbers, it seems like that team should have had more wins. And what's the quickest thing to point to? The manager, right? Why didn't they live up to expectations? Why did they produce? You know, why did it seem like they should have had more wins? Fans are going to jump on the manager. I don't think they blamed everything on David Ross. I do think they looked at it as here's an opportunity to get a difference making manager. Uh, David Ross is going to it's either going to be a one year deal, one year left on his deal, or you pick up the option. And that's kind of risky, right? Well, what do you want to do? Do you want to go into lame duck season with David Ross and miss this opportunity to hire Craig Council, who clearly Jed Hoyer adores and thinks very highly of? They they pulled off a shocker, right? I, I remember when it happened. Uh, it was one of the more shocking uh, things I've ever covered because I just it didn't seem like that was the direction they were going to go. But I, yeah. I think when you look back on it, it makes a lot of sense. And I get what they were doing. They believe he's a difference maker. I've talked to some of the players. They all love David Ross. I think they all kind of understand like this is a guy that's a proven needle mover in a in a job that I think has been devalued over the years, right? You, you need, maybe it, it shouldn't be, but I, I think it's been devalued in some sense. Or maybe there's just not as many standout managers. Uh, I think there's a handful of them that really uh, stand out to me, and and Council is one of them. Now that Francona's gone, it's like Council, Kevin Cash, uh, Bochi, and then you know who, maybe a couple others. But those are the ones that stand out. Yeah, I was going to ask if if David Ross was done dirty in sort of a Rick Renteria to Joe Madden kind of way, just because it seemed like they had told him that he was going to be back, or they had made oh, some yeah. public statements to the effect that he was going to be sure. back. No, he was it's, he was looking for coaches. He was literally yeah. interviewing people for other for vacancies right. on the staff. Eesh. And I'm I'm sure he understands it's a business, and maybe the best manager becomes available. I'm sure the Cubs don't regret doing what they did with Madden. They won a World Series with him, right? But it was not the normal order of operations, I suppose you could say. Yeah, I, I think it's a fair question. And I think ultimately it, it's a very cold way to look at it. But that's the, the way they look at it is this is what's best for the Cubs and winning. Mm -hmm. um, that's I mean, I think Jed pretty much straight up said that to us. Uh, and and it doesn't doesn't feel great like on a human level. But I, I think a, a lot of fans got very angry that anyone would even suggest I, I'm basing it off comments and, and Twitter, which isn't the best thing to do. Right. But <laughs> but some of them uh, get get very angry. Like, how, why would you even suggest that this is bad? And it's like it's not that it's bad for the team. It's just like David Ross was a good guy and and handpicked by Jed and and Theo and, and he was the guy that replaced the hall that they let the Hall of Fame manager Joe Madden and, the, right. and I, I have plenty of criticism towards Joe Madden and how he handled things but that doesn't mean like it's you know it, they handpicked David Ross to replace the guy that ended the curse in Chicago they were all about him and, and they let him go I I, I think I, I think you're it's a valid question I, I think fans have more than moved on uh, but I you know this was their guy, a guy that they sp speak very highly of. And and uh, we'll see what J what David Ross has for the future. I'm curious to see. Uh, I believe he'll manage again. I I'm curious to see how well he does. I think there's something to the fact that he is he's a good connector. He uh, he handles a clubhouse really well. 
He works well with the front office. It, it was all about in-game stuff. And you can improve on that if you're willing to put in the work and willing to be open-minded. I think he has a skill set to be a manager. But, yeah, I, I wouldn't. I, I would not deny that it, it feels a little dirty. And at the time, it was... Shut like it was like wow this was their guy and they just they did him that that was that was rough he was literally interviewing people I think he, Jed went out to uh, Florida knocked on his door and and let him know what was going on it was it was crazy so let's talk about the biggest addition that they have made thus far Shota Imanaga can you tell us how they evaluate him what they expect him to do how he ended up with the Cubs because it seemed like and of course any free agent who signed somewhere can make it seem like this but it certainly seemed like he really wanted to be a Cub so he ended up kind of posting in in Chicago about like in like as early as December at some point he was in the Chicagoland area because his agency has a lot of Chicago based agents so they felt like this was a nice central location so a lot of people took that as oh he wants to be with the Cubs. I do believe that that's not what would happen. He They needed a central location. So while he's making all these visits, he has a home. He's not living in hotels. He has an actual place to, to stay, even if it's temporary. He kind of fell in love with the city at the time. The Cubs weren't showing a ton of interest. They kept in tabs. Uh, they, they wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, they knew what was going on there. And this plays right into Jed's hands. He's looking for value, right? He's always looking for value. He loves deadlines. Jed talks about this all the time. Deadlines spur action. And there was a deadline there. They, they, he had to sign by a certain date. So they felt out the market. They got in. They didn't really offer until late. And it was incentive laden. I believe there was a better offer out there as far as guaranteed money. But he wanted to play for the Cubs. And, and I, I really do believe it kind of there was, uh, you know, this is totally Jed and Carter playing it the way they like to play things. That That's one huge aspect of it. And I do believe Shota kind of fell in love with the city and really enjoyed his time and, and, and felt very comfortable here. I think that played a role in it as well. He seems like a very outgoing personality. I'm, I'm fascinated by him uh, just because... It's really hard to cover a player when you don't speak their language, right? I feel it's even tougher with Japanese players because, like, I don't even understand anything that they're saying, right? They're, they're, like, at least with Spanish-speaking players, I can understand a couple things and, and kind of uh, get the gist of how they're, like, what they're talking about. They're, they're, there's just such a big communication gap. So I, I'm curious to see. He seems like he had an outgoing personality based on one interaction, right? The, the, his introductory press conference, but it, it's going going to be interesting covering him. They love this stuff. They think he has like legitimately number 2 in the rotation upside. They they love him. I think there 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 need to be some tweaks with how he locates the fastball, how he uses his fastball. I think everyone knows that, right? Uh, they but they're kind of playing that slow. They're not they they haven't really talked about massive changes. That's probably changed in the past couple of weeks. They've probably started talking about how they want to attack things. I don't think it's massive changes. It's probably pitch usage and command and location stuff. I don't think it's it's completely changing him as a pitcher. It's going to be interesting, though, and I, I'm, I'm uh, eager to to talk to the pitching coaches and, and Shota during spring training. Yeah, he, he's so interesting because the you could see the, the fly ball profile there being kind of terrifying in Wrigley. And I guess this brings me to a, a question that I have maybe stepping back again just slightly, which is sort of how the the club is 
dealing with the departure of a Craig and Craig Breslow going to to Boston because he had risen all the way to being their AGM and VP of pitching. Um, I think that over the years, you know, you've talked about this on our previews before. We've talked about it. The the sort of Cubs pitching development being at times underwhelming despite a lot of of effort on their part to to improve that. So where does Breslow's departure sort of leave them from a pitching dev perspective? Yeah, I, I mean, I think they believe he set them on the right course, uh, hired a lot of good people. We're starting to see a bit of that, you know, like there, there were guys that finally like it's I mean, I shouldn't see it, it's completely different than it was under the previous regime as far as player yeah. development. They like I, I did. I wrote something this year about like the innings they got from guys that they drafted and developed uh, and uh, like starting with like basically Justin Steele and Edward Alzali, who made real changes under the direction of Breslow and his staff. The innings is insane. Like it, like for like a ten year period, it's like a hundred innings uh, for the Cubs, and then just last year, it's like three hundred and fifty or something like that. It, it was great. Like guys like Javier Assad, guys like Justin Steele. Uh, you have guys coming up through the system, like uh, like a reliever like Luke Little finally made his debut. Things like that. Just they weren't happening at all, good or bad. Like, there weren't even, like, bad players coming up who could just give you 50 innings of, like, whatever, like, try and get through the season with this reliever. They didn't even have those guys before. So this is a, it's a step forward. I think they're in a good place. I mean, they have one of the top prospects. That was a great, that was a draft coup, and and they have continued to develop him. They have people that Breslow hired. Ryan Otero took over as director of pitching. Uh, That's, I'm not sure if he was hired by Breslow, but he became close with Breslow, and they worked closely. I think he actually actually shifted from R&D to player development, and and he worked closely with Breslow. So he's overseeing things. Uh, they, they're really high on him as far as a front office person and player development. Jared Banner moved from player development to assistant GM, and they hired someone from the Astros to lead player development. They believe they're in a good place. They believe they last year was like a really nice step forward, and now, the, now I think what people really want to see to buy in is the consistency and then impact. Right. Like Justin Steele obviously provided impact, but I I don't think uh, that gets uh, they want to see Cade Horton. Right. They want to see Jordan Wicks. They want to see these young guys come up and impact the team immediately and and be difference makers. They want to see young relievers come in and help the team out that like even though those guys came up last year, it's not like they had huge impacts in in the bullpen last year. So that's what I think fans want to see. I I need to see a little bit more before I'm fully like, "Oh yeah, they they this is like a really good player development organization cuz I feel like they're on the verge." And it's a lot of it is like, "Hey, they made the right trades and they drafted well in the first round. Okay, show me a little bit more. Who are you developing beyond that? Who like what kind of pitchers, what kind of relievers are you finding in later rounds? Can you find a steal uh here and there or, or even make them a lot more valuable. I'm starting to see that in the system where it's like, huh, that's an interesting name. Oh, those guy, this guy, I didn't even like pay attention to him on draft day and now he's opening eyes. Okay, like so you're you're seeing that a lot more than with the previous regime. And it's on both pitching and hitting side. So it, it feels like it's in a better place. Ultimately, until you see consistency at the major league level, I don't think they're getting they're going to get the reputation. Uh, I literally talked to people about this recently, both inside and outside their organization, because they just hired a new uh, head of player development, Jason Kanzler from the Astros. 
And I just wanted to get a sense. Who are the, who do you feel like are the best teams at player development right now? Where do you think the Cubs kind of are? And like the general consensus is like, yeah, they have a chance to be looked at as, as really good. I need to see a little bit more while it's like Baltimore, you trust LA, you trust, right? You, you know, right now, those two kind of stand out with a couple uh, here and there, like Cleveland or some people like the Yankees and things like that, right? There's a uh, Tampa Bay, of course. So there's, uh, there's different uh, opinions out there, but I just haven't heard the Cubs as like a standout yet, but I'm curious to see if they can develop that reputation. Yeah, I think when we talked to you last year at this time, we were recounting the history of the pitching lab and how that was, <laughs> you know, much ballyhooed and that the results hadn't come immediately, but they've started to come enough that I'm at least not going to mock the pitching lab. We'll, we'll, see, <laughs> we'll, we'll see if it can be better than that. But, but let's talk about the rest of that rotation, which is projected to be sort of middle of the pack. We talked about Imanaga. Steele obviously had a huge year, took another step forward. Can Tyone be better than he's been? Tell us about Wicks and the expectations for him. Hendricks, of course, had his comeback and wasn't quite his old self, but but was more than serviceable, valuable person to have in the rotation, which was heartening to see him back and contributing again. So tell us about this unit and, and the depth behind those guys. Yeah, I mean, Tyon has to be better. It, like, it, <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, I mean, I mean, both in the sense like he has to, like, if he, he's not, that's a bad signing, and and both in this and the other way is like, can he really be worse than that first half? And I gotta say, like, I I don't want to sound like I'm making excuses, but it, he was bad in that first half. But then it was compounded by the fact that everything went wrong. It was like bad Babbitt. Every single time a reliever came in and there was a runner on base. That guy scored. And uh, like every single time uh, there was like if there was bad defense played by a very good defensive club, it happened to be when Tyon was on the mound. It was insane. The amount of bad luck I'd, I'd see. There were times where he'd give up like these bloops and and I'd just be like, wow, it, like that's just remarkable bad luck. And literally the reliever would come in and give up like three rocket line drives and they'd all be caught. And I was like, what? How is this happening? How is it always this guy that's getting the bad luck? And that was his entire first half. Something happened in uh, the Yankees uh, game. He, he pitched in New York and just dominated. I, was it a complete game or was it eight innings? I can't remember off the top of my head. It may have been a complete game shutout. Uh, he... I mean, it, that he looked great in that game. And since then, he had like, you know, like a 3-2 ERA or something like that over 16 starts. It looked like a much better pitcher. The pitches looked crisper. Uh, he had some like delivery issues that were that were popping up. He added a sweeper. And, you know, like there were a hundred different things going on. But sometimes when you add a new pitch, it can screw up the delivery slightly or screw up something slightly. And it and it just leads to little tiny issues. And he's so meticulous with how he goes about business, how he like studies his his delivery, studies his stuff. And and he he wants things to be in a certain way. I believe he's gonna have a much better year. And I it, like is he gonna have like a three ERA? I'd be surprised by that, but like a three five, three eight, you you take that. That's great. As especially when he's gonna give you like one sixty to one eighty innings. So I I I think there's a big bounce back coming there, uh, just because it was such a rough first season it boy is that it, it stinks when a when a player does that uh, right when they sign um those yeah. first three months because the fans it takes so much for fans to get off of them or to not think that that's a bad signing uh so it, he's got an uphill climb there Hendricks uh, what a I mean I thought that I thought I was watching the end of a career 
it just I thought that's what was happening. So it was, it's a really nice story that what he did last year, how it was he his dominant, you know, 2016 self. No, he, he obviously wasn't. But I'll, I'll say this. His, his velocity was like touching 91 at times. I was. Uh, yeah, I, I was like, <laughs> what is happening right now? Kyle Hendricks hitting 91. Uh, and it. That was he. He really only had his sinker and changeup last year. Now they were as good as they've been since before he was injured. Probably twenty twenty was the last time those pitches were that good. His curveball and four seamer were awful. I am I, I don't know the numbers, but I, I need to go back and look at this to refresh my memory. But I want to say like those were knocked around. They didn't have the normal shape. Nothing was right. He was working to get those back. If he can get those back. I think, you know, he has a chance to I, – I, he's not going to be the same pitcher he was. And maybe I'm wrong on that because he keeps proving people wrong every seemingly every step of the way. But I think he can be a pretty serviceable back end of the rotation pitcher. Uh, and I think that's kind of what they need. They need a lot – they need him mostly for intangibles now too. Like I shouldn't say mostly. Partly for intangibles. They, he's the leader of the rotation as far as that veteran guy. He's going to teach these young guys. And, and there's a lot of them, right? So Steele needs to be close to what he was, right, for this team to be a success. Imanaga needs to step up and be better than what his contract says he is, right? Like He needs to be that number two that they believe he is. Tyon needs to bounce back. And Hendricks needs to be stable and really teach these young guys how to go about business. Jordan Wicks is a lefty with a nasty changeup, uh, ticked up a little bit velocity-wise, better shapes with his his breaking stuff. I didn't see the breaking stuff a lot in the big leagues. He really relied on, you know, it, like fast, dotting up the fastball and then and then the changeup. And, and I think outside of his first start, there wasn't a ton of swing and miss. I'm curious to see what he is. They love his demeanor. They love how he goes about business. He's confident on the mound. You know, he, they... When, when you talk about intangibles, I think he has all of those things that they want in a starting pitcher. He doesn't back down. Uh, he knows how to pitch without, like, say, his best pitches. And working that day, he'll find a way to grind through it. Uh, I'm curious what how good he is. Uh, but, you know, I think the upside is there for middle of the rotation. And then there's so much more youth. There's, I mean, there's Hayden Wisniewski. There's Javier Assad. We talked about Cade Horton. What's Ben Brown? Uh, like there, There's a lot of interesting names. I think Cade Horton is obviously the one that I'm curious about the most. I, I don't recall off the top of my head uh, a pitcher as hyped as, uh, you know, with such high expectations for the Cubs since perhaps Mark Pryor. So, I mean, that's that's lofty praise. I don't, you know, I don't know what he's going to be this year. Perhaps he can help in the bullpen at some point if he has a great start to the season. Uh, outside chance he he's uh, he's starting uh, late in the season for the Cubs, I guess. Uh, but, yeah, there, there's a lot of youth here. There's a lot of expectations. I think that's part of the reason why they haven't gone out and spent uh, huge on an ace or anything like that is because they have uh, ho- high hopes for what they can get out of the rotation. But there, there's also some, you know, concern about this this rotation, right? Like, if Imanaga isn't as good and, and if, if Steele is just average, there's not a lot of impact there. And you're going from, as frustrating as Marcus Stroman's season was last year, I think you kind of know what you're going to get. Assuming help 
with, you know what you're going to get from him. You're, you're not, you don't have that really in the rotation anymore. I, I don't feel any certainty with any of these guys, even as much as, as impressed as I was with Steele last year. And he's probably the closest thing they have in that rotation to like, yeah, I feel really good about that. There's still some question. You, you want to see it multiple years, right? You want to see two, yeah. three years of that level of pitching. And then you're like, okay, I buy it. Uh, so so there's some questions there. There, You absolutely can look at this rotation and, and say like, oof, I can see it going south, especially if the youth doesn't step up. So we covered the rotation. Tell us about how the bullpen is shaping up and who is looking to be the late inning options for a Craig Council. Yeah, I think right now you start the season looking at Alzali and free agent acquisition Hector Neris as the late inning guys, Julian Merriweather as well. Neris is a huge addition for a. Uh, they needed a consistent veteran presence in that cl- uh, in that bullpen that can you know post and and show up as needed, make a ton of appearances, and in and not only for what it means on the field, but this I, I really think this can't be undervalued. I heard this a lot last year. They they had Fulmer and Boxberger as their veterans. Boxberger was hurt most of the season. Fulmer struggled early, and then. Like when he finally found himself, he got hurt again. And that I think that kept him and Boxberger from being leaders for these young guys that are coming up that we talked about before. They need Daniel Palencia and Luke Little and and other guys that are Ben Brown maybe coming up. All all these they have so many young arms. Uh and, and there's gonna be guys that probably surprise that I haven't that I've barely heard of that come up. Like they need someone to show them what it means to pitch in a major league bullpen, how you have to prepare every day, how you have to how you go about business, how much time you spend in the weight room, how when you start your preparation, all that stuff. They really need that. And I think Neris has a great reputation around the game uh, for being a tremendous leader, and I think that's going to impact this team that wants... Jed Hoyer talked about having a homegrown bullpen like a year or two ago. It, it seems silly to... After the the way those rookies performed last year were so inconsistent... It, you can't have that without really teaching these guys how to go about business. I think they have the talent to do it. So so they have that veteran presence in Neris. I think he's going to set a great example. They added Yency Almonte. We'll see if he bounces back. It's a, I, I still think they could probably add someone there. But it's going to be a mix of youth and, and veterans. But the, the core really is Neris. Mark Leiter Jr., who was brilliant for the first five months last year, Julian Merriweather, who turned into a great late-inning guy, and Al Zalai, like those four. And then we'll see where Almonte and some younger guys kind of fit in. Drew Smiley is is going to be that veteran lefty uh, swingman. So there's – I mean, it's not – it looks – solid on paper. The Cubs, outside of last year, have done a good job of kind of maximizing the group, and they have one of the best managers to do that as well. I, I think it has a chance to be solid. If, if there's guys that surprise like they like always happens, it could be even better. We'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. I just, I never feel comfortable going strong one way or the other with the bullpen, but the Cubs have shown some, do have some solid history of, of kind of maximizing the group outside of last year, and it, it actually bit them last year. It was probably one of the bigger reasons that that they failed down the stretch. I want to talk about hitters now, and maybe we can start with Michael Bush, who is someone who Cubs fans might not know as well. He was sort of squeezed off the Dodgers 40-man because, boy, do they have a lot of guys that they have to make room for. You know, he's he's been a top prospect, a top 100 guy. His big league cameo last year didn't go especially well, but he continued to hit well at AAA. So what did Chicago see in him, and what do you think his ultimate defensive home is going to be? 
Yeah, I, I mean, they see offensive upside there. They also see their lineup with a huge hole at first base, and I think they see him filling that for the foreseeable future. They could have... Uh, I think they looked at... I, I think it was interesting because I think if you, you talk to fans or, or people in the media in Chicago, uh, there was a lot of talk about Reese Hoskins, right? And yeah. yes, would he have made some sense for the Cubs? Absolutely. I think he made a ton of sense. I think there's different risk, but there's risk with Reese Hoskins, right? He's in his 30s. You don't know uh, how that knee is going to respond for sure, at least on this uh, this first year back. There is risk there, but obviously if he's the player that he has been, then, then that's a you know, that's an impactful offensive player that the Cubs could really use. They see a similar upside with Bush from the left side on a contract, on a rookie contract, right? And someone that can fill that hole they believe for the next six-ish years. They like him a lot because I think uh, some fans will just look at the numbers and be like, well, isn't he just the same as Matt Mervis? They're different hitters. They're different caliber prospects. Uh, Bush has proven it a little bit more in the minors. They see similar strikeout rates and think they have similar profiles. I don't think so. Bush is much more patient. Um, He gets into a lot of two-strike counts because he's so patient, but it's not like he has a hole in the zone or in his swing or something like that. They they see a pretty special offensive profile, maybe not MVP caliber, but uh, enough that can carry uh, playing first base. You know, if if it's 105, 110, way to run, straight a plus, I think that's probably an issue, right? You you don't want, you want more from your first baseman, but I think they see 125, 130, and and maybe as soon as this year, there's some guys in that front office that are really high on him for this year. They they are excited about Bush and and think, uh, if you go look at their numbers by position, first base is obviously an area uh, of potential upgrade. So I I think they see, they see that as an obvious upgrade for them uh, now and potentially like a really impactful bat, uh, middle-of-the-order bat uh, going forward. I was a fan of Nick Madrigal's when he was a prospect. He has not done a whole lot to bolster my confidence since he ceased to be a prospect and became a big leaguer. Is there still reason to hope? Is Nick Madrigal a a post-hype sleeper? Should I still believe? Well, here's it kind of hit me about a week or two weeks ago, like, they're, it looks like they're really going into the season with Nick Madrigal as the guy <laughs> getting the most playing time at third yeah. base. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, is this really what they're going to do? Okay. Uh, listen, he he did much better at third base than I expected him to. They positioned him well. They they kind of worked around what's not like the strongest arm. And, and the metrics liked him. I don't think he's a special third baseman or anything. He's not going to be able to go deep into foul territory for anything. He can't play deep at third. So there's a lot. They have to play around with him to make him good, you know, quote unquote, defensive third baseman. I don't know what he can be on offense because he just can't stay healthy. I think that's the biggest thing. There was a stretch of like two months, I want to say, last year where it was like this guy's healthy and he's hitting the ball hard and he can hit it into the gaps. Oh, wow, look, he hit it over an outfielder's head. Did he hit that ball <laughs> over the wall? Wow. Uh, that <laughs> That's really how like it was watching him. There were there were a few times where we just kind of like looked around the press box like, wow, he put a charge into that and it was literally like warning track. But still, for him, we hadn't seen that at all. You, I mean, it had gotten to the point where outfielders were cheating so far in on him, he couldn't even, he couldn't get blue pits. So it was just taking taking away the BABIP stuff uh, because he's so contact heavy, but he, there was no pop, but he, he got his lower half under him and then he was hot and he looked really good. And then he got hurt again. 
uh, lower half injury, a hamstring injury, I believe. His hamstrings are just like he's working hard. I, I saw pictures of him. I, I, I'm curious to hear how his offseason was. I know he's going to work his butt off to try and get in the right shape. I just don't know if his body can hold up for a full season. I haven't seen it, so until I see it, it, it's hard for me to believe that it can happen. I believe when he's fully healthy, he's a helpful player. He's a valuable player. I don't know if he'll ever be valuable in the sense of, like, number four pick in the draft valuable. Um, I I think he has a role. I I think if you're going into the season and expecting him to be a highly productive regular third baseman for you, that's... That's rough. I don't know how they're going to work around that. I think for them, there there are other answers at third base, either on the roster or not for the long term. And I think they need to figure out what there is. Nick Madrigal, someone that they trade now while he still has value, or is his value just bench bat, uh, contact-oriented bench bat? You need a ball in play, call upon this guy, spot starts around the infield. Because I, I have a hard time believing he can be an everyday third baseman on what you claim is a playoff-caliber team. He, he could prove me wrong by just staying healthy, I think. I think is that that would be the best way for him to prove me wrong. Right now, Roster Resource has Mike Talkman penciled in as the starting center fielder for the Cubs. And I mean this with all due respect to Mike Talkman. I imagine that Cubs fans and the Cubs front office would rather see Pete Crow Armstrong's name there, if not on opening day, at least at some point. What are your expectations for when he might be up in the majors for good? I know he had a cup of coffee last year. And where does his bat sit right now? Because the the defense has never really been in question with PCA, but um, you know, I think there have been hit tool questions that have sort of plagued him even with this resurgence of power that he's had. So what what's the latest with Pico Ramsha? <laughs> I thought you were gonna say Cody Bellinger's name. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Yeah, I, I think Cubs fans, if you ask them right now, they, they'd love to see Pete Karamster starting in the minors because Cody Bellinger is in center field and Michael All Bush right, is at first. Right. But yes, I the, I would agree that a lot of people, if it's between Talkman and Pete Karamster, they'd like to see PCA up to start the season. I mean, it also, there's some value there in the sense that if he starts a season with the team and then he ends up rookie of the year, there's uh, you get the extra draft picks, right? I, I can't remember the exact compensation there, but that's valuable to the team, of course, uh, and helps them. I, the, the big question with PCA is the offense, and he worked on it a ton in the offseason. Uh, at, at he was in Arizona. Very specific things that they're working on. Uh, Dustin Kelly was out there for a while with him. That's a Cubs hit, hitting coach. And it's it's all about the fastball and the fastball up, deciding like how how do you lay off this? And when you're not laying off it, how do you, how is it not like weak contact or or popping the ball up or whatever it is? So that that's that's really the focus right now. I think he was I think it was very clear that was the issue when he came up. He looked overmatched by fastballs at times. You know, you don't want to take too much away from that such a small sample, but I think uh if you were to, you're not taking anything good away uh, <laughs> offensively. Uh, so, so what it did was it, it made it very obvious what he needed to work on, and he set out to work on those things. The team was very clear about it, like, "Hey, work your butt off on these things, and and you have a you have a chance. You'll you'll have a chance to earn a spot to start the season." I think there's a legitimate chance. We got to see what happens with Cody Bellinger. You know, Talkman is a is a really valuable player in the sense like that's enough like similar to Magical in the sense that. If he's your bench guy, if he's your fourth outfielder, right. you, you can be happy. But yeah, I, maybe he starts the season 
in center field. Maybe it's Talkman. I I'd still see it being uh, them wanting to lean PCA, give the young guy a chance, and and Talkman can be the extra outfielder. And and I think there's value there. And then ultimately the best best case for the Cubs, I really believe, is signing Bellinger. Like they they need him in in multiple ways. Say Suzuki absolutely raked the last couple months of the season after his mental break. So was it just that mental break? Was it a mechanical change? Can Cubs fans expect him to be, if not a thousand OPS guy for a full season, something closer to that? I've always been high on Suzuki's potential because he's got a lot of qualities that you love, right? He, he can barrel the ball. He doesn't swing and miss a lot. It, he's just a, he's just a, got all these qualities that you look at and you're like, yeah, this is this is a quality like a high quality offensive force. If it all comes together, he could be like all star caliber. I think it, you know the last two months it was huge. It was a mental break, right? And it really was mental issues. He tweaks his mechanics all the time. He, like he's a he doesn't like to talk about it, but I've talked to enough people that I know that he makes he's constantly messing with things, timing things, uh, different aspects of his swing. He's a, he's a he's a tweak. But like he'll stick with something when he feels right. What was wrong was he just was in between on everything. He was mentally out of it. He, He lost his confidence. David Ross sat him, told him to watch for a while. And he came back and he was super aggressive. That didn't last all the entire two months, but his first, I want to say like two weeks, he was as aggressive as I've seen him. And this is a topic of conversation with him because he's really, it, it's borderline passive, his patience, where it's like he'll let like uh, balls down the heart of the zone go by. And it's like, ah, that's what you got to attack. And I think pitchers were kind of figuring that out. So when he came back, he was just like, I'm jumping on the first good pitch I see. And he hit some rockets all over the field. I think he got a swagger back. He was super confident and he didn't stay aggressive like that, but he was producing like crazy down the stretch. Like you said, I think there's a potential to be that type of bat for a full season. You know, I'm a see it to really buy in guy but still I've like I said I've been high on him because of the qualities the uh like what he can do shows me that the outputs should be there uh for him to be an all-star uh maybe 140 plus uh, way to runs graded plus for a full season I, the Cubs need that they 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 would be so happy if that's what say it turns into I think he has a chance to So we always end by asking what would constitute a success for this team. Now, the Cubs were recently ranked by Baseball Prospectus as the number two overall farm system in the game behind Baltimore, which that's a success of sorts. That is certainly a step forward. And we talked a little bit about the improvements in pitching development. But what about holistically? What's the goal for the season, even though they've got a great farm system now? It's not a rebuilding club. They have rebuilt or they're trying to have rebuilt. I don't know if that yeah. tense made sense, but they're they're trying to compete and they almost made it in last year and it was disappointing that they ultimately fell short. So where do they stand? Where should Cubs fans uh, assess them at competitively? Yeah, I know. I think Cubs fans should be uh, grading harshly at this point now and they should set their expectations firmly as the playoffs. Rebuilds have to end, and they wouldn't even call this a rebuild, so it, it, we're, we're not even going to give them that. They, they need to start winning. It's the Chicago Cubs, big market team. I really think uh, when, when I'm talking about what constitutes a success, they have to sign one of the big free agents, too. They have to sign one of these big remaining free agents. They have to have a team on paper by opening day that I look at and say, yeah, that's a team that can be as good as the Cardinals, if not better. 
and and then go out and win and and win their division uh, and really set themselves up for us to think by the end of this season that is a scary team on the rise. They, you know, I'm not saying they're going to make it to the World Series, make an NLCS run or anything like that. Sure, anything can happen in the playoffs, so maybe that happens. But they need to make the playoffs and have some young guys come up, have have an established team that you kind of see the core with young guys coming up and saying, that's a dangerous club going forward. That 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 needs to be what happens. If, if it's not, then the plans that they had really haven't worked. Because it can't be any longer than going into 2025 and saying that's a World Series contender or that's a team that teams should be looking out for. All right. Well, we always look forward to having you on, whether the Cubs are good or bad or somewhere in between that's hard to pin down. (laughs) And even if they are still (laughs) potentially a work in progress. So thank you very much for coming on. And always, people can follow the Cubs via Sahadev's coverage at The Athletic. And you are now free to leave your car. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. Take care, guys. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. Meant to mention this earlier when we were talking about the Super Bowl. I stuck it out the entire time, but of course, I was watching from home the entire time. As some of you may have seen, the ever-fascinating Tommy Pham revealed on his Instagram stories that he had been at the game. He's from Las Vegas, so he was there in the second quarter, and then he was home by the third quarter when he sent out a photo of himself sitting on his couch with his feet up on the table, legs crossed, watching the game on TV with the caption, Game is better from my couch. A lot of people question this behavior, even if sometimes sports can be better on TV. These are pretty pricey tickets. But hey, guess he thought the game was sort of slow. It was at that point. He wanted to head home. Can't imagine spending that much on Super Bowl tickets and then not staying. Then again, I don't make as much money as Tommy Pham. And hey, it's a sunk cost at that point. No need to stick it out just because you spent the money. Then again, why would you spend the money if you didn't want to go to the game enough to stick out a slow couple of quarters? Tommy Pham, man. Interesting cat. If you'd like to give me and Meg enough money to buy Super Bowl tickets and leave halfway through, did he stay for Usher, I wonder? I hope so. That man's got moves. Or if you just want to help us keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get yourself access to some perks, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount. Michael Beaton, Steiner, French Noble, Avid Demon, and Teresa Gallagher. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group, monthly bonus episodes, playoff live streams, prioritized email answers, discounts on merch and ad-free fancrafts memberships, and so much more. Check out all the offerings at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, you can contact us via email. Send your questions and comments to podcast at fancrafts.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We'll have another preview pod for you later this week, but we'll be back with a non-preview pod next. Talk to you then. Where do you go in a world of bad tapes for the good tapes? On baseball and life With a balance of Analytics and humor Philosophical music Effectively wild Effectively wild Effectively wild